2: what's up guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny Abdeljabar. what's up brother how are you chilling man as per usual and happy halloween dude how how was halloween in puerto rico compared to the united states oh well, well uh you I are the san- united states <laughs> compared san to juan. mainland u.s
0: Sa- san juan was all right um it's leave something to be desired. But I, you know, given the, the fact that I couldn't find very much to do on the day that didn't cost like $300 that um, I thought it was going to be worse. So we went to a little area that I've taken you to a few times already La Placita, which is this big, you know, open air bar area. And it was cool. We got We got like a 40% hit on people dressed up in costumes. And of course I was in the best costume because you know, it's your boy. <laughs> but uh, What what did you do? What, what, what were you? Uh, I was the devil uh, again this year. The devil. Yeah, I have a really insane-looking mask. Uh, it's got crazy giant teeth. Maybe I'll post it in Patreon for anyone who might be interested.
2: I don't think anyone's interested.
0: Uh, I don't know. I think they might be. We'll have to find
2: out. <laughs> I, I, I think we're going to find out that no one's interested. Um, <laughs> were they yelling, El Diablo! yeah they were actually yeah it was funny oh yeah they got a kick out of it it was great um well good for them and good and good for you i'm happy you had fun um so on today's episode we are going to talk about world war one we're going to talk about the history of halloween no we're not we're going to talk about world war (laughs) one and damn it (laughs) we are i guess it's kind of timely because you know i've noticed over the past years there's been a there's been an interest or rising interest in, in learning about world war one and, and just in popular culture and when i was younger there really weren't any movies there weren't any there weren't any tv shows there weren't really there wasn't much besides your junior year like western civ course in high school um that went over world war one or discussed it and that was for like, like for a week a day. yeah that was for a week and then, you know, most of that class was dominated by World War Two, right? Um, because World War Two is the sexier story. Now, I've noticed that there's been an uptake in films about World War One.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, games. Um, yeah, films. And I guess there was a video game that came out not so long ago. Yeah, There was, um, the was battle,
0: a battle battle from Battlefield uh, one. That was all World War One. It was super cool. Uh, and I think Call of Duty did
2: one too. I just didn't play that one. Well, in addition to video games, there's obviously been films. Mm-hmm. And the film, I, there was a movie, I think it st- really started with Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson released a basically just archive films. So he remastered and he, re, he, he uh, colorized this old footage that he found and completely restored it to where. It looks pretty amazing. I don't know if you've seen, um, I think it's called They Will." They Shall Not Grow Old. Have you heard of that? I have, and I think I've seen clips on YouTube, but I've never watched the film itself. It's very interesting. It's pretty amazing what he's able to do with this film, with this old, like, kind of grungy film. Because they, they show you, the first half hour of this documentary is, like, the grungy old black and white uh you know silent film and then all of a sudden he transitions it to color and then he hires voice actors he gets like the real weapons uh to to, to uh to sink them in to the into the to the soldiers who are walking around mm-hmm. and he has real weapons in the background he sinks them in it's it's pretty it's it's honestly really remarkable what he does and apparently he did this almost completely as a public service where he didn't even you know take a paycheck for this. He just did it because he because he has a big passion for World War 1 and history. Hmm. So it was really it was really interesting. Another film that came out, I think it was 1917, and I actually haven't seen this where it has something to do. I think it's like one of those films where it's like shot it's like one shot. Yep. I saw it. It was awesome. It was awesome. I yeah. haven't seen it, but um I, I've heard good things. And now most recently there was the Um, I guess the new adaption of All uh, Quiet on the Western Front, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, the the German book that came out in, I think, 1930 or 1929. It came out in the late 20s, uh, early 30s, and then there was a movie. I think the movie was American Made, and it won the Academy Award. And this movie was, you know, this book is is a classic. Um, I'm pretty sure I read this when I was either in college or high school and you know it's a sad book it's nothing really uh, heroic about this about this story it just really has to do with the the horror of of fighting in a trench from the german perspective mm-hmm. and netflix i think i'm not sure who produced this or what studio produced this but netflix german one at the very yeah. least released it to an american audience they just came out with like the new adaptation the 2022 version of uh, all quiet on the western front and i have to say it's very it's very moving and it's you know it definitely captures the same feeling that you get from the book that it's impending doom hopelessness it's very sad um it's hard to watch at moments what what were your impressions of it because i know you just recently saw it i mean you know it it was really good um
0: as most of these films are and i'm just kind of into this so You know, I had my girlfriend watching it for the first, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, and she immediately walked away and started doing whatever it was that she was doing before I turned it on. Um, So it's definitely like a war movie. You know, you have to be into that kind of stuff to appreciate it, I think. Um, I guess some of my favorite parts
2: were just like showing the. And don't spoil anything. If someone uh, hasn't read the book, I'll try not to. Knows the ending. don't spoil like the ending or anything i, I will say is spoiler you, alert
0: did, the germans capitulate
2: <laughs> I, I will say the book the new movie it does it basically captures the same story there's there's minor i mean there are narrative differences um but the essence like the two main characters uh paul and, and Kat, they they basically like you know go through the same story arc Right, exactly, and and you know, I, I really like what
0: they what they did with, you know, kind of showing what it was like in the trenches. Um, I really like the 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 bit where they're going around collecting the tags because I think that that whole motif of of counting the dead was like a, a big um, kind of point to the story. It's like how many people are dying from this particular war, and obviously this is just a little microcosm of the war in general. You know, they end the story by telling you that like seventeen or twenty million people, you know, died in this war. So, you know, it, it was pretty powerful, heavy shit. Definitely not something you want to watch if you're
2: if you're feeling glum, but um very interesting, very interesting watch. I will say the film does an excellent job at, at um really taking the anti war position because most war films, they even if they do have an anti-war kind of bent. They, I always feel like they take the, you know, they always kind of romanticize war. At yeah, the they end. glorify it a this little bit. This doesn't romanticize bit, yeah. war whatsoever. The, the, the yeah. point is pretty clear that this is hell. Like the way that people die is completely arbitrary. There's no romanticism. There's nothing. There's nothing heroic about it. It's just there's it's no just real living It's just anywhere. hell. Yeah, and that's it. And you you really see you know from the beginning of the film where they kind of show how. Uh, excited Paul and his friends are and, and how, you know, riled up they are by the nationalism and, and the, and, um, you know, the, the, the grand speeches and they think that, you know, they're on the verge of taking Paris and it's, you know, at this point it's 1917 when the war is clearly in a very big stalemate and the Germans are, are, um, for all intents and purposes, losing the war at this time. And, you know, he goes in there expecting to, um, you know essentially be like a knight in shining armor and then the reality just like dumps on his head and mm-hmm. uh it's it's just really interesting to see him kind of cope with that yeah the the um it's it's a great film if you haven't seen it watch it it's on netflix it's uh it's very good keep it in the germans in the, the german language because the acting is just so good it, the, yeah the acting is outstanding yeah so i would recommend Agreed. just use reading the subtitles yeah, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. Um, we want to talk about World War One. I. Um, I, I think that it's relevant again today, and I know we've talked and we've done episodes where we did like the origins of World War One or how World War One started, and and we went through the politics and, and the geopolitics of, of that era. But I think it's about time to give it another shot and uh, and go over this history again because. It, it, it hasn't been at least two years since we did a World War I episode. Yeah, I, I know so, it's yeah. been a while. And I want to just perhaps even take this into multiple episodes because we've done the last World War One or Origins of World War One episode. I know it was probably like just one 90-minute episode rather than a real fleshed-out case study and journey of how this all happened you know, the challenge that I I usually have when, when looking at World War One and how it started is, where do you start? Where do you start this story? Where, you know, this war that kills 20 million people? Um, where do you start? And then whose perspective do you look at this from? Because we're talking right. about over 10 different belligerent countries in this conflict. And, you know, all these countries have You know so many different motivations and circumstances and personalities who are who are moving pieces around and because of that I think it's important to look at things at a macro level and then from that macro level you can zoom down from there for me and I think most people you know the origins of world war one is usually very German or British centric that's what most people uh, will typically examine like you know how did Germany and, and Britain end up in a war together what was a foreign policy of Germany, what, which, which kind of uh, ignited this conflict. And I generally take the same approach just because there's like the most literature on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably do it to a fault to some degree. So I'm going to so try to, uh, you know, look at the different angles of, of different motivations, uh, you know, between the French and the, and the, and the Russians and the Serbs and, uh, you know, the Italians and the Austrians. But, um, you know, going into this, I think the most important thing when you're looking at World War I or when you're reading about it or trying to understand it is to look at how the war started rather than why the war started. Because when you ask why, it usually assigns blame to a party. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when you ask why did they do this, you can usually answer why or the human brain tends to be like, well, because they're evil. Right. The good guys versus the bad guys. Well, because they're bastards. That's why it happened. Mm -hmm. The how you look at it more objectively and you, and you say, okay, well, this policy led to that policy and this uh, reaction led to this, you know, reaction, Uh, this escalated to that. So I think looking at it in that perspective is is the, is the better way. And you kind of pull more truth than just saying, well, because Kaiser Wilhelm was a fucking crazy person. Right. Or he might have been. (laughs) Or the British were sleazy, lying bastards. Or the French were just, you know, uptight and they couldn't get over losing, you know, territory to the Germans.
0: Also, probably. Or the Russians
2: were just imperial and they wanted to take Constantinople and they wanted to do, you know, I mean, yeah, that's all those things are, you know, true to to a certain degree. But I know looking at all these things and how they eventually kind of collide to, uh, really make a horrible start to the 20th century because this was right. the opening, you know, the grand show of the 20th century is World War 1 and it leads to World War 2 of course, which is worse than World War 1. Um and then prequel if you will. Yeah, the, the the prequel or the or the original, but um I mean both were 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 catastrophic apocalyptic events. They were World War 1 was basically a giant black hole that Sucked the resources out of the world, into mm-hmm. just nothing, into just chaos, and and sucked, uh, you know, human capital. It sucked investments. It destroyed Europe, uh, you know, morally, economically. It completely destroyed it to the point where the people who were living in 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 Europe were were living in such destitute that they looked to the communist and the in the fascist for answers. Mm -hmm. so it's an incredible and when I say incredible I just mean powerful thing to really look at and I think it's worth understanding what were the main drivers behind the war so I don't know on this on this this might be us kicking off a new series because I really want to hit you know different aspects of this because I think there's just so many different interesting stories in the overall narrative of how the war started that you can just take a lot out of it and, and learn so where should I begin. Um, maybe like
0: in Jesus times. <laughs>
2: you could probably trace it that far back. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the—I'm kidding. <laughs> you can start anywhere, but I think the 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 natural starting point is 1871. Sure. Because if you don't start at 1871 you can just go back to like the Roman conquest of Germania or now you can, you can just go, there's no, there's no ending. You can go start at the 30 year war or, or, or really whatever. You can start at the Napoleon's wars in, in Germany. So 1871, the reason why we would start there is because that's when, when Germany unifies as one state, it's, it's the year that Germany officially goes from, you know, a Confederate realm of German princedoms to a unified state. Mm -hmm. Prior to the 19th century, 23 million Germans were divided into 314 states. So, you know, these states were, were, were loosely united under the nominal rule of the Holy Roman Emperor, who was also the emperor of Austria. I mean, 314, that's like, that's crazy.
0: You know, when you think about just the size of the region that Germanic peoples would have been in and around, that's like... That's like sp- splitting up a state into like I don't know, less than a county. Big city with its suburbs is like a state unto itself. That's crazy.
2: Yeah, just look at a map of of the Holy Roman Empire in the 1600s, and it's just a bunch of little small towns, basically. It's it's you know everything is, is autonomous. There's no centralized state. And when you know these wars kick off in in the 1600s, these religious wars between Catholics and Protestants that evolve into, you know, a geopolitical struggle, almost every, there's no, there's no, um, there's no standing army. There's no professional armies. I mean, who are fighting on behalf of like one nation, every single one of them is a, is a mercenary. So it's just a completely, um, you know, the concept of nation is not, is not yet in existence. If you took one of these, and I, I know I use this term, I say this a lot, but I, I, I like this uh, analogy. If you take somebody from this time period in 1633, and you put them in a time machine, and then you put them in the United Nations, they would not know what the hell a nation was. They'd be like, "What the hell is a nation? United Nation? Like what? You mean like a council? Like a prince? To be, like what? What's a, like what the hell is a nation?" that concept of like this national unity would be completely lost on them. It does not really exist at this point in European history. So to make this more complicated, I mean, Germany is a pretty rough place to stick a nation state, as in it doesn't really have any natural frontiers, especially in the East and the South. Also, it wasn't really even possible to define Germany on ethnic grounds. The, The Holy Roman Empire... It included uh, land with French and Dutch and Danish and Polish and, and, and Czech speakers. Um, and then there was a lot of Germans who lived outside of the Holy Roman Empire as well. Now, there was one state that had real power, and that was Prussia. and P- uh, Russia R- <laughs> Prussia. yeah, Prussia with the P in front of it. And And Prussia loses a war to Napoleon in 1805 you know, what happens because of that that loss is that the Holy Roman Empire completely just falls apart. And when the Holy Roman Empire disintegrates, Napoleon reorganizes all these little micro states, essentially into larger states. And you know, he also annexed territory on the left bank of the Rhine and he combined states together. Uh in, in effect, what Napoleon does he kinda lays the groundwork for an eventual German state to exist. Now, when Napoleon falls, the structure that he created to rule German lands it turns into a you know a German confederation. So, let me get this straight: are you saying that the modern German nation state is like a French invention? Then, I wouldn't say it's a French invention, but I would say that the political reorganizing that that Napoleon did. And the former states that, you know, were included in the Holy Roman Empire that really didn't have any political power or much political power as, you know, as a collective empire at all, that his reorganizing sets the groundwork for, for a lot of this, for, for a lot of these states to be uh, to be more unified at the very least. So Napoleon's responsible for World War One, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. You could say that as a direct... I mean, I mean, in a lot of ways, you could you could trace Napoleon's influence to basically everything. The guy had an insane impact on on global affairs, you know, to say the very least. But um, to, to pull this back, in, in response to to losing to the French back in 1805, Prussia starts to make reforms to increase the power of the state. So you know, reforms that would centralize government. Um, You know, they created a a professional army, you know, they have they have a mass education. Now fast forward, and I'm going to be skipping through a lot of the different nationalist movements and revolutions and revolts that kind of solidify, you know, German nationalism. King Wilhelm, the first of Prussia, he selects a guy by the name of Otto von Bismarck to be his prime minister. And Bismarck comes from the junker class in prussia which is the landowning class his main prerogative you know as the most powerful statesman in germany was to increase the power of the prussian royal family and basically what he does is is in the 1860s he engineers a series of wars against denmark austria and france and the goal you know behind these wars was to align the smaller German states behind them, effectively solidifying one German state dominated by the Prussian junkers. With, with one caveat, though, he deliberately excluded the German-speaking Austrians because, you know, the Austrians already had Franz Josef, who had been emperor for like a thousand years.
1: Oh, he, was, he was in, in his 70s
2: thing. or 80s at the time, but right. more like 50 years. I'm exaggerating, of course. I guess like the, uh, the the
0: point was that they didn't want to share um, rulership with the with the Austrians because they already had a
2: pretty pretty structured governing body uh, under Franz Joseph. Exactly, the new state was going to be dominated by the Prussian ruling class, not the Austrians, not the Habsburgs. So mm-hmm. there there you go. Like they were excluded from that initial alliance, and you know during the creation, they fought you know wars with each other. Um, now, the final step in creating Germany was, was the Franco-Prussian War, where—and I'm no expert on this part of, of, of German unification, so um, I'm just taking kind of what a consensus is from a lot of historians. But what they'll say is that Bismarck actually goes—he uh, he goads the French into attacking the left bank of the Rhine in order for him to get support from the southern German states— And this outcome is that Prussia wins. They annex about 6,500 square miles of eastern France, uh, Alsace-Lorraine, and the Prussian king Wilhelm I becomes the emperor of Germany.
0: Cool story, bro. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And, you know, there's obviously a lot more to the history of the unification of Germany, but for time's sake, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a quick crash course. Now, the new German empire as strong as it, as it is it's surrounded by other countries that have an axe to grind with them in the west you have the pissed off france who wants revenge uh, you know for take for annexing territory then you also have the russians and the austrians to the east therefore bismarck he has two major foreign policy goals and the first goal was to isolate france from other allies in europe um, and also encourage them to expand their empire in Africa. And the goal there was, you know, not only to distract them, but potentially get them into a conflict with the British, who were also in the empire business. The second major goal is to stabilize the relationship between Austria-Hungary and Russia. He didn't want them fighting because... If they're rivals, it could force Germany into a situation where they had to choose between, you know, one of the two. And if they favored one, it would leave the door open for the French to make an alliance with, um, you know, whomever they did not favor. So, um, you know, Bismarck he creates an alliance called the League of Three Emperors. However, it wasn't really that effective of an alliance the only thing that they really agree on is being hard on like democratic and 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 like and um you know socialist marxist movements and to be honest in the late 1800s these socialist movements really don't have any power yet mm. this isn't you know 19 the 1917 this is this isn't the time where these socialist movements are are um threatening to take down states so um I guess the big problem with the German, you know, the German Empire's eastern flank was that Austria-Hungary and Russia they had conflicting interests in the Balkans, and you know the Balkans was basically Ukraine of the the Ukraine of that era in terms of just being a hotspot. Everyone knew this, um, you know, before World War One broke out. Even like the poor blacksmith's son knew this that this was you know a potential breaking point if if uh, something happened it could drag a lot of different countries into a war but to pull this back to you know what's going on in the 1870s the ottomans were falling apart and uh the ottomans were falling apart really fast so you have the russians in in austria-hungary trying to fill that power vacuum And in the Balkans, there were a large number of Eastern Orthodox Slavs who were pulling at the heartstrings of the Russians, you know, based on um, common religion and and heritage. And, uh, you know, they were appealing to Russia in order to get them to assist in their historic struggle against the Muslim Turks. So this was a time of pan Slavism. And, you know, there was this really strong camaraderie between, you know, the Russians and the South Slavs, just like there is now. You know, you ever hear the saying that the most hardcore Russian nationalist on the Internet is always a Serb? Yeah, I do. <laughs> this is why? <laughs> I mean, it goes back to this, but, you know, it goes back to, um, it, it goes back to like this this shared, you know, Pan-Slavism and, and uh, these... uh nationalist movements and you know in modern times a breaking point between u.s and russian relations was when nato bombed serbia a lot of russians were very upset about that but i digress um so the russian empire had been involved in some way or another in serbian politics for for decades at this point so they were doing things like aiding Serbian resistance movements um, you know they were representing them in international uh, uh, councils they were they were called Serbia's big brother in Serbia what was going on at that time and I think this will warrant a, another a different episode. We've talked about this before and I think we even have even done episodes on this but such a crazy story in Serbia at this time, there was these two families that were going back and forth in controlling. Essentially the Serbian throne, which started off as a as a as a vassal, say to the Ottoman Empire, but they eventually get their independence. There are these two families and two factions that were going back and forth for about a hundred years who were just constantly just as killing each other. There was a very strong or bitter rivalry between these two families fighting for the throne of Serbia and, and um you know, one of the big things is that they were aligning with different you know one aligned with the Austrians one aligned with the Russians they pulled this back in the 1870s there was a widespread revolt against the Ottoman Empire and it was all across the Balkans and Russia is backing the rebels however Austria-Hungary doesn't want the Ottoman Empire to fall they want the Ottomans to stick around because what they're actually worried about is not necessarily like another great power. They're more worried about the Serbs because they think the Serbs are crazy. And the last thing they want is an aggressive Serbian state on their border. Mm. So I'm gonna pull a quote from the uh, Austro-Hungarian foreign minister in 1875. Maybe you can read this so I can take a glass of water. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Turkey possesses a utility
0: almost providential for Austria-Hungary, for Turkey maintains the status quo of the small Balkan states and impedes their aspirations. If it were not for Turkey, all of these aspirations would fall down on our heads. If Bosnia-Herzegovina should go to Serbia or Montenegro, or if a new state should be formed there, which we cannot prevent, then we, would, we should be ruined and should find ourselves assume the role of sick man hmm. interesting this episode is made possible by pwc when unprecedented times are all the time it's time to start walking the talk leaders like you turn to pwc to see and stay ahead upskill your workforce use intelligent automation and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and, of course, stock ideas, plenty of them.
1: To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Assume the role of sick man is, is an odd to the Ottomans because in the late 1800s, ever since the Crimean War, the Ottoman Empire was called the sick man of Europe. Why? Because they were so fallen. they were saying that if there's a state, if there's a Serbian state, then we're going to become the new sick man of europe like that's how big of a catastrophe it will be to to uh, austria- hungarys uh pristine across other world powers and because the last thing that they want is is a is a, is a, is a yugoslavia type state of you know united southern Slavs appearing on their borders um, and, and appearing on their border dominated by radical serbs because austria-hungary is an empire with a sizable Orthodox Slav population. What they feared, they feared a Serbian state would encourage other ethnic groups to, you know, one, you know, join the Serbs or create their own independent state. So they, they scare, they were very nervous about what would be the result of a Serbian state with, with very, hard nationalist sentiment. Right. And this,
0: friends, is why borders are bullshit, because the Austrian Empire housed quite some, uh, quite the amount of, uh, as you put it, um, Orthodox Slavs. Uh, so really didn't
2: make Yeah, and it's just, I mean, Austria-Hungary was dominated by German and Hungarian speakers, but they weren't the majority, they they had Czech speakers and Serbs and Polish speakers. Mm-hmm. They had about something like twelve or thirteen official languages. At least twelve or thirteen languages, where each that were that consisted of more than like three percent of the country. I don't know what the exact stat is, but it, the point is, it was a lot. There was a lot of languages. It was multicultural society. There the Germans were by no mean the majority in Austria-Hungary. But right. I guess the, the the ultimate point I'm trying to make here is not necessarily the what was going on in the Austrian the the, the empire of Austria-Hungary. It's more so is that Russia and Austria had contradicting Balkans policies. Thus it made them geopolitical rivals. And for for Bismarck this becomes a really difficult juggling act trying to keep both of these states happy because again the german policy is to have these guys get along not be rivals because who cares about the balkans and you know in in the eyes of, of germany right it doesn't border germany like why do they care like they don't really give a shit what's going on there uh bismarck here's a quote he says that um the the balkan question was not worth the healthy bones of one pomeranian musketeer (laughs) i know pomeranian is like a like a type of
0: person but um i'm thinking of like the dog that's a musketeer
2: (laughs) yeah that's that's also the vision that that creeps up in my head some doofy dog (laughs) with a sword and a musket yeah but you know nevertheless they do ultimately side more with austria-hungary and in 1877, Russia, with an alliance with, you know, the Southern Slavs, the, the, mainly the Serbs and the Balkans, they go to war with the Ottomans. And they basically knock the Ottomans out of Europe. They push them back to Istanbul. And, um, you know, Romania, Serbia, Montenegro, they all get independence from the Ottoman Empire. But the problem is now is that, you know, at least for the great powers, they need to intervene and try to figure out what are the rules now. Like, who's gonna? What's what's the deal with like sphere of influence politics? Because the Ottoman Empire had had been dominating this part of the world for at this point like 400 years. So, who gets what, and who is going to be the most? You know, what what are going to be the the geopolitical rules in terms of? Who has power here who's filling the vacuum of the ottomans and that's what ultimately creates so much friction in the balkans why it becomes this hot spot so what's what's decided in the way that bismarck plays this in in germany's eyes and in bismarck's eyes he sees this as an opportunity to kind of put their stamp as like oh germany is this neutral player we um you know we're able to uh, you know, mitigate potential hotspots. We're able to be, un, you know, unbiased nego- uh, 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 mediators. I don't know why I couldn't think of that word. We could be mediators in these global affairs. Look at this new German uh, society. We're stepping up and, you know, we're stabilizing regions. So the Congress of Berlin What's ultimately decided is that Austria-Hungary would get Bosnia, and Herzegovina, and some other territories, and then Russia ended up getting ports and stuff, essentially on the Black Sea. They got like some—I forget exactly—but mainly it was it was it was uh, ports in the Black Sea. So that was the exchange, and um, you know, a lot of people weren't happy about what what took place. A lot of people wanted Russia to take a larger sphere of influence and in bosnia and other places and um so it it caused a lot of uh problems for bismarck though this was you know not even really a long-term solution because what the ultimate fear was in, in german policy was that um you know the austrians would enter an alliance with france that was the last thing that they wanted so because of this fear in 1879 bismarck enters into an alliance with Austria-Hungary and the thinking was that if he joined a defensive alliance with Austria-Hungary Russia would have to work with them because Russia if they got into a war it's not like Russia could fight both at the same time like Russia wouldn't be able to fight Germany and uh, and in Austria-Hungary all at once by themselves so they were kind of forced to work with them that was the that was the thinking behind uh you know german mainly bismarck ultimately their main goal was keep austria hungary from entering an alliance with france we can't have that that would be a catastrophe for us so the next time there is a you know the the league of emperors the league of three emperors meet germany austria and russia they make a pledge of neutrality. So basically, what what they agree on, if one of them gets into a war with a fourth power, and the fourth power is France. It's not <laughs> said in like the documents, but it, it is 100% France they're talking about. So if one of them gets into a war with France, no nation in the League of Three Emperors will join France's side. So they they make a pledge of neutrality where if they get into a war with France, if Germany gets into a war with France, Russia nor Austria-Hungary will, you know, join that side. That was basically the arrangement. That that's what that's what it essentially meant because Austria-Hungary and France and um and Russia there, there's things that they agreed on, but they also had, you know, potential rivalries with France as well.
0: So what's this in terms of especially agreed? in was- Russia's case? Was this like a mutually agreed upon like
2: uh, neutrality
0: thing, or did the Germans bring this up? Like, whose idea was this? Germany
2: was a primary pusher of the League of Three Emperors, so um, and, and I mean that was their their prerogative was to keep these was ultimately to make sure that the situation was stable in the East. What he also tried to do is that he tried to he tried to bring Italy into the fold as well. Because Italy had imperial rivalries with France. Um, you know, they had been pushed out of North Africa by the French. So the, the Italians were, were looking to stick it to them. And the agreement that was made was, um, was, was Germany and Austria would come to Italy's assistance if they were attacked by France unprovoked. So in turn... Italy would assist Germany in a potential war against France. And, um, you know, if a war broke out between Austria Hungary and Russia, the agreement was that Italy would re- remain neutral. So, this is the Triple Alliance. At the same time, France was encouraged to pursue empire building in Africa. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, the goal was to potentially get them into a conflict with the British. Which which does actually happen. I mean, there's a lot of different spots where they had conflicting policies on, but the most notable being the over the, the Suez Canal in Egypt. Because in 1882 there's this nationalist uprising in Egypt. And, you know, let's just say that this this uh uprising was threatening bondholders with investments in Egypt. I don't know the entire story on this, but I do know that British the British and the French they were supposed to create an occupation zone in, e- in Egypt together, but for some reason or another, and I don't know the reason why, the French bailed, or at least that's what the British say, the French bailed on them, and the British were forced to lead the occupation on their own. And that's what leads to uh, essentially the, the French losing the Suez Canal and the British establishing Egypt as a British protectorate. Bismarck was basically whispering in the ears of the French and saying, hey, man, you got ripped off because, you know, the French built the Suez Canal. Um, So he encouraged France to, you know, look for compensation in other parts of Africa. Um, You know, he would also kind of play this weird game diplomatically with, with the British colonies where, you know, he would lay claims to places like Southwest Africa or the Cameroons, And he did this to create this colonial understanding with the French that, to some degree, Germany would undermine British influence. Now, as long as you guys didn't start claiming territory in Germany. He was trying to make the French okay with accepting a status downgrade in Europe by compensating them with an overseas empire. Which he personally was not interested in. So his number one priority was was German security and and dominating continental Europe, and the alliance system started to broaden. In um, you know 1887, the British, in the, in the and the Italians, they were cooperating in the Mediterranean. They started working together. Uh, that same year, the Triple Alliance was renewed. Between uh, Italy, Germany, and Austria-Hungary, um, and then also Germany had signed a new agreement in which, w- with with Russia, in which they would remain neutral if a if a war broke out. So, for the most part, Bismarck, at least when he was in power, he was able to stabilize things. But I guess the position that, in what a lot of historians will say about what he what Bismarck set up, is that he it was overly complicated for any successor to to pull off especially yeah. if one was was just not as uh, competent as him which which is the case he struck it's, too many his, deals with ex- too many people <laughs> yeah and, and and a lot of these deals are like in his head you know like right. so he che- he did achieve short term stability in europe but you can argue very strongly that bismarck he ended up ultimately creating long-term problems for his successors because the the biggest problem was and there was really nothing that anyone could do about this or no alliance that bismarck could could set or 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 create or you know no matter no amount of imperial possessions that he would endorse for the french because remember the the one of the disadvantages of germany at this time is that since that they're a continental power they're not an overseas power they can't compensate france they can't give france like their own colonies they can't be like okay we're sorry about that why don't you take libya right or we'll give you we'll give you you know some of these islands germany doesn't really have imperial possessions so they they don't really have anything to barter with them or give them give them they have to Result in creating these alliance systems. they have to make these like really complex networks of uh, diplomatic solutions in order to kind of stay in front of France and and ultimately keep them isolated from wanting to get the idea of you know trying to retake any claimed territory. So there is no there is nothing that they could do that would change the attitude in France. That they were humiliated by the Prussians. And Bismarck leaning towards Austria-Hungary over Russia was eventually going to push them in the arms, push Russia into the arms of the French. So I have a quote from Christopher Clark from the book Sleepwalkers. Let me take it. Danny, this. maybe you can take this.
0: Alright, so. The primary aim of German foreign policy in the Bismarck era was to prevent the emergence of a hostile coalition of great powers. For as long as it continued, the tension between the world empires made this objective relatively easy to accomplish. French rivalry with the Britain, (laughs) with the Britain, French rivalry with Britain intermittently distracted Paris from its hostility towards Germany. Russia's hostility to Britain deflected russian attention from the balkans and thus helped to stave off the austro-russian clash as as a mainly continental power germany so long as it did not itself aspire to found a global empire could stay out of the great struggles over africa central asia and china and as long as britain france and russia remained imperial rivals berlin would always be able to play the margins between them this state affair This state of affairs enhanced the empire's security and created a certain wiggle room for policymakers in Berlin. But the Bismarck strategy also exacted a cost. It required that Germany always punch under its weight, abstain from the imperial feeding frenzies in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere, and remain on the sidelines when other powers quarreled over global power shares. It also required that Berlin enter into contradictory commitments to neighboring powers. The consequence was a sense of national paralysis that badly that played badly with the electors whose votes determined the composition of the German national parliament. The idea of colonial possessions imagined as Eldorados with cheap labor and raw materials and burgeoning native or settler populations to buy national exports was as bewitching to the German middle classes as to those of the established European empires. That's super interesting. So it kind of points out the double-edged sword there, right? So on the one hand, you know, by not getting involved overseas, they're not inadvertently entering into hostilities with other uh, uh, empires. They're, you know, vying for global, uh, global empires. Um, but at the same time, they get stuck, right? They can only really play within the bounds of of Europe, and in order to make that work, you know, he writes that they have to enter into contradictory (laughs) commitments with neighboring powers. As you were reading a few of them uh, before, I was actually starting to question, like, wait, I thought they were supposed to be neutral in this one and not not neutral in that one and and the other. It's, like, super hard to follow, so I I can see how that could be a, a problem.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, just think about all the different alliances that they have they have set up at this point. So there's a triple alliance with with Italy, France, excuse me, Italy, Austria, Hungary, and Germany. And then there is an alliance between. There's a neutrality alliance between the, the three empires, right? The three empires. Um, there's also an alliance between. There's cooperation with the British and the. Um, with the british and the italians in regards to like mediterranean uh, shipping rights and and trade routes and and those types of things so there's all these different systems in place right now but if one th- but they also contradict each other as well because th- the, i mean the elephant in the room is there's a couple of there's a couple of big contradictions one being that the major one is obviously the balkans ones. I mean that's the one that, that eventually blows up and just causes a massive that that sparks the counter the, the powder keg. But there's also the the um you know the problems with britain. So one of the things that that or one of the ways that bismarck's africa policy blows up in his face or germany's face eventually it creates this mutual, instead of creating this, um, this this understanding with the French against the British, what it ultimately does, it gave the German public the false impression that their colonial ambitions were thwarted by the British. Made them look weak. <laughs> so the German public... Germany are, like, just look at the politics of this era. So Germany is, like, the best nation in the world right now. They just united. They're a powerhouse. And there was a very strong appetite for worldwide influence. Like, why don't we have any colonies? Why don't we own half the world? Because at, the, at this point, the British and the French, they basically had colonies everywhere. Their populations together were man like something like 500 million people they mm-hmm. they ruled over it was something it's something crazy i mean with with britain and india and the big population centers that they governed and then it, it, they they just governed a humongous amount of people and natural resources across the world this was something that the german public was like what well, you know What's the deal? Like, where is this great country? Why don't Why don't we have this worldwide influence? Why Why aren't Why isn't the world speaking German? Why is every single part of the world now speaking either English or France French? So, um, I think they they looked at Britain as like the the imperial enemy, and that's ultimately what Kaiser Wilhelm II. That's his attitude, and why he 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 plays this this game that. Kind of provokes a lot of animosity from the British later on, which I think we're going to save for another episode, like the the British rivalry with with the Germans, the naval the naval race. But um, you know, he's Bismarck is playing this colonial game for diplomatic reasons rather than this actual desire to control parts of Africa, because remember Bismarck his in, in Kaiser Wilhelm the first. So Wilhelm II's father, they care a lot more about the the Junker class at the end of the day, dominating German domestic politics in continental Europe. I think um, Bismarck's had some quote along the lines of, "When I look at a map of Africa, I see Germany, France, and in Austria-Hungary and Russia, like all surrounding Germany. That's what mm-hmm. he says. Like he doesn't meaning that." He doesn't care. It's none of his concern, really. Like he cares about the national security, like the direct national security interest of Germany. Um, And then also Germany is already an economic powerhouse at this time. So after unification in 1871, Germany immediately becomes the most powerful state in Europe, which completely tosses the European power dynamic for a loop. So, between 1870 and 1914, the population jumps from 41 million to 66 million. So, 40% of the population worked in Germany's industrial sector. That's crazy. Coal production had increased 800%. So, more electricity was produced in Germany than... Britain, Italy, and France combined—the same thing with steel production. So they produced two thirds of Europe of uh, Europe steel. So greater than Britain, Italy, France combined. And they were exploiting um, it, I imagine. Yeah, in this um, you know, this dramatic expansion, it just freaked everyone out, especially the French. And to add insult to injury, and injury, much of Germany's industrial growth is due to the iron ore deposits found in Alsace-Lorraine. And, you know, going back to Alsace-Lorraine, and, you know, I think this is definitely the, uh, one of the major reasons for the war is, is you know, annexing territory, all, it, it could really blow back. There's a lot of blowback to annexing territory, and you see this in every single major war um every world war there's there's payback for annexed territory or territory Mm -hmm. that is unjust that you know there's a a, there's payback for this unjust feeling of having territory ripped from you having your native speakers ripped for you q ukraine Um, and crimea (laughs) yeah sure there's there's ukraine and crimea and in the modern day there's um there's um there's i mean germany world war 2 uh there's there's um i mean there's just there's there's too many examples to really count it annexing territory always uh creates long-term animosity towards one state from another and alsace-lorraine it wasn't just some territory in france it was the it was the center of Charlemagne's uh, empire, his Frankish empire, empire in the ninth century, also known as a,
0: Karl der Grosse for Germans. <laughs> everyone Karl always, de Grosse's re- Empire. Yeah, it, everyone always uh, refers to him as Charlemagne, uh, and it gives the impression that he's he's like just French side, you know, uh, French guy Charlemagne. Well, Karl I know I Grosse. know
2: French and Germans. They they argue over what he was. Yeah, they do. No, he's French. He was, no, he's German. He's he's both. They both claim him. So.
0: He was super afraid. important. Like like very huge.
2: He unified Europe in the ninth century, really. He brought Christianity to to those godless pagans. Yep. So be, that's that's where his empire, the center of his empire, was um, in Alsace-Lorraine, and then also um, Alsace-Lorraine was part, was a big part of the Holy Roman Empire until the end of the Thirty Year War. It was politically impossible for any French government after eighteen seventy one to to renounce the pursuit of taking back taking back um. Uh, you know, this, this province, just like how I imagine. And I think I said in our last episode, I think it's imp- politically impossible for Zelensky to go back on any of the things that he has said. Right. Um, I don't think it would be, po- it, it wouldn't be possible for, I'm not sure if it would be possible for Ukrainian government at this point to not lay claims to any territory that they've lost over the past five years, including Crimea and right. you know, the, the, the four provinces that they've lost over the—or officially lost over the—or or I guess, I don't know if you would say officially, but— Recently Luhansk lost. Luhansk and Donetsk and zephyr yeah. um, um, and—I Zabar- can't pronounce—Zephyrzaia. Zephyrzaia. i am just horrible Zabar- pronouncing Zabar- it, but yeah. those four provinces. Um. Okay, where was I? Yeah, France is pissed off. There was nothing you could do. There was no political— dancing around that you could do to settle their thirst for revenge for annexing territory um and then i have another quote from from uh christopher clark and i'll just i'll take this alsace lorraine became the holy grail of the french cult of revanche providing the focus for success revanche providing the focus for successive waves of chauvinist agitation the lost provinces were never the sole driving force behind french policy yet they periodically inflamed public opinion and exerted a stealthy pressure on the policymakers in Paris. Even without the annexation, however, the very exist- the existence of the German Empire would have tra- would have transformed the relationship with France, whose security had traditionally been underwritten by the political fragmentation of German Europe. After 1871, France was bound to seek every possible opportunity to contain the new and formidable, formidable power on its eastern border, a lasting... Uh, enmity between France and Germany was thus to some extent programmed into the European international system it is hard to overstate the world's historical impact of this transformation relations among the European states would henceforth be driven by the new and unfamiliar dynamic so the Europe so the polarization of Europe is more than I think even the Balkans and and um, and sleepwalkers this book is is, is a really great if you want to read a book about the polarization of like the alliance system, and also the the crisis in Serbia, I think this is a great this is a great book to read. This is really good. It doesn't go as much into the British. Um, there, there's other books I think that do a better job uh, talking about the uh, the naval race between the British and the um, and uh, the Germans that takes place, which is a you know a huge factor as well. But um, th- it, this this covers it you know b- very thorough um,
1: the uh, you know the French German dynamic. Um. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a
0: foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches
2: April 9th. I think this is kind of the drive, the, the primary driver of the war, because and what I mean, it's so hard because there's so many primary drivers of the war that it's it's really almost a crime to just pick one of them. But this this dynamic was just always going to lead to this um, this policy that would entangle all these different states into these weird alliance systems. The the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine and the french desire to to uh not only just get back their territory but not to become a second-rate power that was that was ultimately the fear you know you lose a territory all right it sucks but this is 19th century europe people lose territories it's not totally foreign that people lose parts chunks of their state Mm -hmm. it's the threat that they are going to be the second-class citizens in Europe compared to the German neighbors, who are just crushing it economically. We're just they're they're just crushing it and in, in militarily. They're just they're um. They're they're on their way. Fa- they're like new money, and then the French and the British and and the Russians. They're 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 the old money, and you know the old money don't look kindly to new money in a lot of cases. Like who the hell are they? Germany used to be the backwater, a bunch of rival, you know, country folk. And now there's some uh, superpower. It's not supposed to be like this. We're supposed to dominate politics there. You know, right. we're the, you know, the, the 30-year war was a, was a war that was, you, you had all these larger powers that were essentially running proxy wars there. Well, imagine if, like, the center where you're having all these proxy wars unifies, and uh, be like, you as, know, it, as it,
0: if the Middle East one day just decided to u- completely unify into, I don't know, let's call it a caliphate, <laughs> and <yeah>. uh, <laughs> and but then like became like an e- that was an economic power an economic
2: powerhouse, you know? right? <laughs> and started building nukes, right? Exactly. Everybody would freak out. When there was a threat of that happening, and it wasn't under a caliphate, it was under Arab nationalism in the 1950s. Right. There was the fear that that Nasser was going to, because they had formed Egypt had formed a state, uh, a very short-lived state that only lasted for two years with Syria, mm-hmm. and they thought that you know this could actually uh, this could join together with Iraq and create this 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 uh, Arab state that would. Eventually, be able to take out Saudi Arabia, and they would be able to control, uh, you know, a very large, disproportionate percentage of the world's oil resources. Right. So that was one of the reasons, and that was the primary reason why the U.S. policy was so hostile towards Arab nationalism, because they didn't. I mean, the last thing they wanted was this large Arab state that that was independent. From, well, they studied their history for f- with Germany, you know, yeah, that's they studied their history with Germany and they saw the potential threat or what happens when when uh common language speakers, maybe with different dialects in some parts of the country, unite because that's basically you know what the Arab world is, they're all speaking Arab, they have different dialects in different you know parts of the Arab world, but um yeah i mean it was just like a shock it was a big it was a shock to the system and it wasn't right. supposed to be this way so of course there was you know besides the end the the um the annexing territory there was there was just this this uh fear that their place in power was going to be pulled away from them by this by this new state so okay um i don't want to reiterate myself again Um, so so what Bismarck ultimately was trying to do, he, or what he did do can only work with someone like him in charge. So again, like another, another person wasn't going to be able to manage these, these different systems that he created and, you know, his successor lacks the diplomatic skills necessary to, you know, continue this policy of French containment. Which officially ends when France enters into a military alliance with Russia in 1893, and not only do they enter a, a military alliance, Russia and France, but they 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 uh, enter it into an economic partnership, where, um, you know, France is is initially essentially you know putting a large percentage of their foreign capital into the russian industrial sector and railroads in russia has a population of like 140 million people france's population is stagnated so there is this major fear on you know on the german side there is this fear of russia becoming this becoming the new germany essentially where once they industrialize they have the human resource they have the the um the human capital along with the natural resources to surpass germany because i mean essentially they do i mean just look at modern day russia today russia is among the most resource rich countries in the entire world and Maybe it's how not the
0: most industrious though not like the germans
2: yeah i mean they're not the most they're not exporting you know machinery like the germans are but they do have just an almost unlimited amount of natural resources. Right. Uh, Well, I do have a a question. Energy and temper. I
0: I do have a question because he kind of like ran over this. Why does Russia enter a alliance with France? Because like whatever happened, the, what do you call it? The three, the three empires treaty where they're all like going to be, you know, (laughs) uh,
2: neutral or whatever like what? how does this happen out of nowhere so the, the way that this happens is that russia is so it, it doesn't make any sense really on paper because france and russia aren't necessarily natural allies Like you wouldn't think of them as natural allies they're both imperial powers on so the they sides both of have europe. <laughs> yeah on other sides of europe so russia they have a greater influence in Central Asia and, and um, you know, the Balkans regions. France, you know, a lot of their imperial power is in Northern Africa. So, you know, they can't help each other out. I guess there are some conflicting imperial policies that they have where, I think mostly in Turkey, where I don't think France allows Russia to... Uh, ship through the turkish straits i'm not sure but i know that there's some conflicting imperial uh, you know conflicting policies where which would you know w- would serve to separate them but i think there's some things that they do have in common which would unite them um so first and foremost the they both are rivals with the british hmm. in different areas of areas of the world so, the Russians are rivals with the British in Central Asia, and they spend an entire century basically trying to outgame each other. Um, you know, in Afghanistan and in, um, in in India, the great the great game. And then the French and the British are rivals in Africa. So you know there there is that kind of mutual. Rivalry even outside of Germany with them. Then there is a... a um, there's the economic reasons as well. So the French were investing a lot of money into Russia. But I think another thing was that Germany was also building up their army. And I think it came to the point where the Russians were just threatened by not just them building up their army, but Bismarck, he's fired in uh, 1890, 1880 or 1890. He's fired, I think, in 1890. And um, the guy, Kaiser Wilhelm II, didn't want him around. One of the reasons why Kaiser Wilhelm it gets rid of Bismarck is, well, I'm Bismarck is like a really old man at this time. So. That could have been one of the reasons, but another reason is because Kaiser Wilhelm was one of those Germans who was like, "Hey, why doesn't Germany have a have a world influence? Like, why why are we the uh, why do these overrated powers have all these overseas colonies?" So he, you know, was the opposite of Bismarck, where he was Eurocentric and wanted to uh, to uh, you know extend German power across the world. So I think that Russia started to view the Germans as a threat, and they both were really worried about the possibility of the British joining the triple alliance with Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. And Mm -hmm. I think if that happened, they both felt that they would be completely isolated. So I think that's what kind of bound them or, or pushed them together at the end was that... They had really nowhere else to to go to. If that's a if that makes sense, kind of, yeah. Like there was no there was no one really else to um, to turn to. The German, the uh, the French, and the Russians, because they were both kind of being kicked out and isolated. So um, I think that's that's how. That's how it happens. Also, you know the Russians don't, the Germans don't renew their their uh, non-aggression or their neutrality pact with with uh with Germany. So they're like, okay, they're not renewing the neutrality pact. They they're favoring Austria, Hungary. Um, there's a fear that our political our um, imperial rival could join an alliance with with you know these Central Powers. Um, I think we need to make an assurance and, and get into you know, some type of deal with the French. We all, we already have enough economic, um, you know, interest with them. So why not, why not make it official? I think we should wrap this up here because it is getting late here. I think we're almost an hour, a little bit over an hour and 15 minutes. And I think if we add anything else right now, it might get, I think we should save it because I want to give proper attention to some other aspects. Some follow-up episodes to this are, you know, one being the the eventual... For people who are like, well, how did you talk about the, the British-German naval race that happens? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a huge part, and I don't want to go over that in, like, 20 minutes. So um, I think that will probably be either the next episode, and then I think it dive back into, like, the Serbian politics, the Balkans regions, and going in more depth there. But, um, I mean, hopefully this can be kind of a series... Where we do causes of World War One, and um, we can kind of build from here and uh, see what you all are interested in. But uh, anything else, Danny? Nope. If you like what you saw, right. or you want us to focus on a particular uh, topic or surrounding the origins of World War One, let us know with a quick review. How about that? <laughs> yeah, let us know if you want us to tackle something via review. Um, you can do that on Apple iTunes. And you can also rate and review us on Spotify as well. Rating and reviewing the podcast is the number one way to support our show. So please do that. You can also join us on Patreon. That is another way you get access to our Slack community. And um, all right, let's, let's wrap this thing up. Danny, anything else before we conclude? No, man. All right. Peace, guys. Peace.